All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Everybody, we are here in mid June of 2020, and as you are no doubt aware, the social distancing goes on, and our live tape discussions have really turned into more of an online and virtual meeting. But it seems to have gone really well, as you know. My name is Rory Sweeney. I'm the host, and with me, as always, is Glenn Thomas. Glenn, how are you feeling this month? I'm feeling terrific. It's great to be back together again. And as you noted on Twitter, we're in a new delivery year, so this is our first episode in the new PJM delivery year. Happy new delivery year! Absolutely. Well, I agree with you. It is going to certainly be a memorable episode this month. Last month, we brought you Chairman Neil Chatterjee, the chairman of FERC. And this month, Glenn, I will let you do the honors, as always, to introduce our equally exciting guest. We're pleased to be joined today by FERC Commissioner Richard Glick. Commissioner Glick was nominated to FERC in August of 2017 and confirmed in November of 2017. Prior to that, he served as general counsel to the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Before that, he had several various government affairs positions working for Ebertrola, EPM Energy, Pacific Core. He also had several stints on Capitol Hill. And before that, he was an associate at the law firm of Vernon Limford. He's a graduate of George Washington University undergrad and Georgetown Law School. Pretty much a quintessential Washington, D.C. resume here. And it's no wonder he's in the position that he is, given that incredible amount of experience leading up to his nomination. So, Commissioner Glick, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Thanks for having me. It's always interesting for our audience to get a personal perspective on these people that they are observing on a daily basis. Well, I think we should just jump right into it. Sure. Why don't I kick it off here? And yeah, let's talk a little bit about your Capitol Hill experience. Obviously, we spent a lot of time on last month's episode with Chairman Chatterjee, and it was pretty clear from that conversation how his Hill experience and the exposures he got on Capitol Hill prepared him in many ways for his role as a commissioner, but also it was a little bit of a transition for him because it's a very different job being in the role both he was in and as well as what you were in on Capitol Hill moving to the commission. So could you just talk a little about that transition for you? What was the challenges associated with it? What went smoothly? What took a little while to get used to? And just how your experience on the Hill is serving you as a commissioner? It was kind of like jogging on a treadmill at a very nice, comfortable pace. And then all of a sudden, someone pressing the high speed button. I was sworn in in November of 2017, and the commission was still working on catching up from the lack of quorum for six months. I know the quorum was restored in August, and I came a couple of months later, and then Chairman McIntyre came a couple of weeks after that. But there was so much going on, so much activity. We were in the middle of considering the Department of Energy's proposed NOPR with regard to subsidizing nuclear and coal plants and, and some hydro plants as well, and the name of resilience. And it was just quite a shock to me. I remember when I first got there, there was a memo sitting on my desk, 200 pages long. Long. And, you know, when you come from the world of Capitol Hill, where you write memos for senators and congresspeople of one or two pages long, because they have a lot going on, a lot to cover, it took a lot. Now, my experience did help me, though, and in large part, really kind of uh, helped me separate out the disagreements you might have with commissioners versus the ability to get along with them. And, and you can disagree 
professionally, but certainly not personally. And, and I remember when I first worked in the Senate in the 1990s, I worked for a senator named Dale Boppers from Arkansas. He was a senior member of the Senate Energy Committee at the time. And I was always amazed. I used to sit with him on the Senate floor and he would get into very heavy debates with people about a whole variety of issues. And they would say some pretty strong words back at each other. And then once the debate ended and the vote occurred, they'd be slapping each other on the back and laughing and talking about their families and so on. And I remember asking Senator Bumpers, how could you do that? And he said, you can't take it personally. It's nothing personal. It's just business. And I think that's the way I see my relationship with Chairman Chatterjee, for instance. Since we both come from the Capitol Hill experience, we both see that it's nothing, it's not personal. And I, I actually like Chairman Chatterjee a lot. I have very strong differences of opinion with him on various issues. And sometimes I'm not very happy with the way the commission is being run. At the same time, I think he's a very affable person. He's a very good guy to talk to. I, I really enjoy our biweekly conversations. And I think because we both have that congressional background, we don't take it personally. We just do our work, we exchange our words at the commission meetings or maybe in press releases. But after that, we realize we both have a lot in common as well. You know, one of the things that Chairman Chatterjee said on our last podcast that was interesting was that he said, you make him a better commissioner because you force him to challenge some of his thinking, you know, write sharper, crisper, more thought out positions. Do you see the same thing in reverse? Do you feel like he makes you a better commissioner in some respects on those items you're disagreeing on? I do, actually. I think all of my colleagues do. I think, you know, it's, it's actually very helpful in some ways to have orders in which we strongly disagree and I get to sit down sometimes and listen to them or hear what their opinions are or read them certainly in the draft orders before they're issued publicly. And I say, well, that's an interesting line of thinking. I hadn't thought of that. And, you know, if we all thought alike, if we we're all monolithic and, and sat there and well voted five nothing on everything, if we had five commissioners, we wouldn't be serving much of a purpose. So I think very much so, both hearing from Chairman Chatterjee, but my colleagues, Commissioner Danley and Commissioner McNamee, I learned a lot from them on a daily basis. I expect that that is going to be a strong theme running throughout our podcast podcast today talking about the differences there. And I had some questions I was going to ask later, but since we're on this topic, I'll bring it up. Obviously, the discussion today is supposed to be about the energy industry and what's going on at FERC, but you're kind of hitting on some interesting workplace wisdom here. How do you compartmentalize those two things? Because as we'll discuss later, you know, you've got some really strong words in some dissents that you've made on orders in which the chairman has been on the other side and the other commissioners have been on the other side. How do you compartmentalize that difference between your personal and your professional relationships? I think you just, you have to do it for for your sanity for one, but two, I think you have to realize that it's not personal, it's business, right? And I think we certainly even behind the scenes have very strong conversations sometimes and and very important disagreements that sometimes show themselves in my dissents or in some of the conversations we have during public commission meetings. But for the most part, I think that they they come at this honestly, they come at their views honestly, and and they they have different views, of course, but they try to explain them, I try to explain my views. And I think it's it's a healthy debate. Um, Again, as I said, said before, it wouldn't be if we had everyone who just agreed with everybody on every every particular issue, it wouldn't be very interesting, but also we wouldn't be producing opinions that were uh, thought out as well. You know, one of the things you learn quickly as a commissioner is that you need three votes to get something done. Well, I guess in the case of FERC, it's sometimes it's only two votes, depending on how many people are sitting. But <laughs> the, the, the point is, the disagreements of today uh, may be the agreements of tomorrow. And the majority can move in multiple directions. So, you know, having those, the ability to work with folks and not make things personal is, is really critical because, you know, you, you've seen it happen to them. You, you've seen it happen at certain state commissions. I won't name names, but where the commissioners don't even talk to each other because there's so much personal animosity. Certainly that manifests itself in certain decisions, but I think it's really important and a really good point that you know, the commissioner's raising here that you just have to be able to work with folks on a personal level for the 
the building to function. And some days you're going to win because if you disagree the right way, you can keep those personal relationships and perhaps gain a boat down the road. I want to give a shout out to Commissioner Danley, our, our newest colleague, uh, who used to obviously be the FERC general counsel. He in particular, I've had some really good discussions with him over uh, since he's joined the commission and, and he's been very open to at least hearing out my views. And hopefully I've been as open in hearing out his views. And we've actually worked together on some things. And we actually even jointly issued a concurring opinion a couple of weeks ago. To echo Chairman Chatterjee, I think it makes me a better commissioner to hear the views of my colleagues and consider them. You know, how were you received in the building when you first came in? As you said, Commissioner Danley, who wasn't the commissioner at the time, but was still at the commission. Talk about, you said the transition was was kind of speeding up the treadmill. Was that hard? Was it easy? And what was the reception that you got when you walked into the building? Well, the reception was amazing. And I want to talk about our, if I can for a minute, our FERC staff. I've worked for a federal agency before. I worked for the Department of Energy during the last two years of the Clinton administration. I worked for uh, Secretary Bill Richardson at the time. And I worked with a lot of career staff, for one of a better term, at the Department of Energy. And then I came to FERC. And it's night and day in the sense that not only is everyone very smart, as they were at the Department of Energy, but the dedication to the commission's mission is unbelievable. These folks are true professionals. And they certainly work at the FERC when there's chairmen and chairs of different views and, and they have to reconcile that. But they do a great job of getting the commissioners up to speed. And that's the way I felt when I walked in the door for the first time in, as a commissioner in November of 2017. It's an honor just to be coming into the building when we are actually not working from home and going to the building, but it's an honor to be working for them every day, working with them every day and, and get the benefit of their wisdom. And it's, I see that with every new commissioner. They, are, they do everything they can to get that, that person up to speed. And it takes quite a bit of time. These are very controversial, and, and, but also very difficult and complex issues. I don't know what we would do without them. So, Commissioner, from the time that you walked into the building and had the, the reception that you did, as you've gotten more comfortable in your position, do you feel that your role has evolved at all on how you represent the commission, the dissents that, that you offer, how you get involved with the decisions? Has it evolved at all? I think my view of it has evolved. In, in large part, you know, when you get nominated and then confirmed for, for this type of position, everyone wants to hear what your goals are, what your priorities are for the commission on a going forward basis. And I had mine, um, you know, cybersecurity, making sure we had an active enforcement office, uh, eliminating barriers to new technologies, things like that. And then you get to the commission and you pretty much realize that unless you're the chair, you don't control the agenda. The agenda essentially controls you. So basically, we react to the orders and the issues that the chair wants to raise. In addition, we have to. Um, there are items that are statutorily required to be act- acted upon with a certain amount of time. So we're, we have to act on those as well. So I, I feel like I, I spend mo- most of my time now reacting to the commission's agendas, again, set by the chair, rather than having a, a, a proactive focus in, in trying to get the commission to do what I want it to do. Uh, nonetheless, it's still an honor every day just to be able to show up at the commission and be able to work on these issues because they are, as everyone knows, the transition that we are currently in in the industry. It's a great time to be working at, at FERC and be working on these issues. You know, I noticed on Twitter, I've been following you for a while, and I noticed that you often will tweet about either your dissents or situations in which you are taking a different position from what the general public seems to believe where, where the commission's at. Do you see yourself as sort of being the champion or, you know, the last bastion of hope for certain ideas or technologies or perspectives on the commission at all? Not really. I, you know, I, when I, when I first came to the commission, even now, I, I don't really view, I'm not the renewable energy commissioner. Some people 
viewed it that way. I'm not the new technology commissioner. I'm just one of uh, what hopefully eventually will be a five-member commission addressing the various issues that we that come up on a daily basis. But this kind of, as I mentioned before, why it's helpful to have the thinking and the, and the conversations we do have among the commissioners. What I have some concern about is that I don't think that uh, we spend enough time negotiating or considering other people's views on various issues, even though we have those conversations. And when I came to FERC, I, was, I, I spoke to a lot of former commissioners, and they told me how partisan it was, how that, that there was always efforts to try to accommodate each commissioner's views before orders are, are finalized. And I don't think that's really turned out that way in some cases. In many cases, I feel like the attitude has been, well, we have the votes, so you take it or leave it. We're not going to negotiate with you in terms of the language of various orders. And because of that, that's led to some dissents and some very strongly worded dissents in some cases. My concern is, is that the commission in a variety of orders, the orders that have been issued have essentially, in some cases, discriminated against some of those new technologies, those new ideas. And so I don't necessarily see, see myself as a defender of those technologies as much as defending what I perceive as a discrimination that is occurring in some of our orders. Do you see any hope for negotiation returning to the process? Any ideas what's behind that, what's fundamentally driving that and how, how you address it? Well, I hope so. And I, I've had this conversation with Chairman Chatterjee quite a bit, and we've talked about trying to find a path forward. And there are some issues where I think, for instance, on energy storage, I'm sure we can talk about that more later, but on energy storage and our Order 841, where I think there was some good discussion and compromise. But I think it's more, it's just a matter of just being willing to sit down and listen. I think, you know, the Chairman McIntyre used to say the commission speaks best when it speaks together unanimously. And I don't think that uh, credo has been um, has been essentially followed. I think a lot of cases, like I said, when, when they have the votes, they say, okay, we don't need to talk to you anymore. And there are a lot of issues I would love to compromise on. I think there are opportunities for compromise and working together, but that obviously takes, it takes two to tango, as my father used to tell me. <laughs> Is there any specific issue that you'd like to throw out there as one where you'd be willing to compromise? Sure, I'll give you give you a, a couple examples. Uh, one of which is on transmission incentives. We had a transmission incentive uh, rulemaking, proposed rulemaking that was uh, issued recently, and uh, obviously we have differences of opinion on what type of incentives should be should go forward and how we should view incentives in general. But there is, uh, I'll give you one particular example. On uh, there's a particular ROE adder for being a member of of an RTO, and I tend to think that that those adders go on forever. And I'm not sure there's, once you're in the RTO, I'm not sure there's much, there's really much of an incentive there uh, in, in, in terms of whether you're going to leave the RTO or not. So I would love to have had a comp- compromise position. I, as a matter of fact, I talked about it publicly, but no one was willing to talk about it, which is why don't we try to limit that ROE adder for a number of years, rather than saying, I would say, get rid of it altogether. My colleagues would say, not only did they say keep it, but let's double it. And I'd say, well, let's have an ROE adder for a while for RTOs. But after a while, once you're in the RTO for a number of years, there's not much of incentive anymore and get rid of it. Unfortunately, there was just wasn't an interest in discussing that particular issue. The other area, I'll be a little more generic, is PERPA. I think everyone realizes PERPA probably could use some updating. And uh, there are some parts of our regs certainly could we could improve PERPA. But I wasn't given the chance to offer proposals. Basically, I was told they were going to go with the position that they had. And that was that. Was that. So I'm frustrated on those particular issues, on several issues in addition to that, but I'm still hopeful that eventually we can have a better dialogue on some of those issues in terms of compromising. One thing we learned on the last podcast is that 
Chairman Chatterjee likes to listen to this podcast while he's working out. <laughs> so, you know, there you go, Chairman Chatterjee. Uh, there's two areas where Commissioner Glick's willing to compromise a little. And, uh, and also, uh, Chairman Chatterjee, you might want to take a water break since we're about, you know, 25 <laughs> minutes into the, uh, the podcast here. So be sure to stay hydrated. It's pretty hot out there. Yeah, I was just over here also imagining that and Chairman Chatterjee jogging along and then just kind of, mm, okay, that, okay, I see where you're going with that. People around him would probably be uh, very confused. Commissioner, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier you, and you had touched on the fact that you do have these dissents out there, these strong dissents, you know, some of them are, are, are real zingers and just from the reserve price formation dissent from last week, i just quote this, you said in there, that is yet another abdication of our responsibility to protect consumers and to comply with the requirements of the Federal Power Act. Although I am obviously disappointed with this outcome, I cannot say I am surprised. Did these come from, you, know, you were sort of pointing towards this earlier, the lack of willingness to negotiate? Is that what kind of drew you to these very polarized comments? Because, you know, you, you weren't receiving any engagement on reaching a middle ground with the other commissioners? I think that's part of it. I, you know, Commissioner Massey, I, I, he was one of the folks I, I tried to get some advice from before I came to the commission. And he once told me, if you're going to dissent, do it right. And <laughs> we've, we've tried to do that in, in our office. I think we've obviously written a number of dissents, but they've been uh, probably more substantive with certainly many more citations and in-depth arguments than may have been the case beforehand. But I, I kind of what I, when, I, when I worked for Senator Bumpers back in the, in the 1990s on Capitol Hill, you know, he always taught me that you should always say what's on your mind. Don't pull your punches. And uh, I think some of these dissents have certainly done that. I think part of it is certainly uh, the substantive arguments we make, but I think part of it is some of the language may be a little harsh, is maybe out of frustration that we don't necessarily have uh, an ability to have much input in terms of the outcome of some of these orders. Mm-hmm. Your dissents are lengthy. They're well-sourced. Where do you find the time to just push out that volume of written material? Because it's very prolific, I must say, as far as commissioners go. Well, I have, I was talking about the FERC staff a few minutes ago, but I think I have four advisors in my office, plus other folks as well, that are just by far and away the best. I think some people have referred to them as the dream team. And I certainly think that to be the case in terms of FERC uh, advisors on the 11th floor of the commission. They are hardworking. They are incredibly intelligent. They understand these issues. I have uh, one of my advisors, I think, understands PJM probably better than I think PJM does. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I, I think whatever we put out, I certainly spend my time on it. But they are vastly responsible for the great work uh, that comes out in our dissents and our concurring opinions. Well, we miss seeing Pamela in Norristown at the stakeholder meetings, but he's in good hands down there with you. Yes. Commissioner, now that you've been on the job for three years, there have been a, a, a few strong dissents here and a, a few other orders. What do you consider the th- things that you're most proud of? A couple of things. One, I mentioned earlier, uh, order number 841 on storage. And I know the chairman spoke about that when he spoke there in last month's uh, podcast. Very proud of that. That I think we, we certainly moved the ball forward, eliminated some of the barriers that existed for storage participation in the wholesale markets. And I was, I think that's is an example actually where we worked together, work with Chairman Chatterjee, Commissioner LaFleur. And actually, I, I want to give a shout out to Chairman McIntyre, why he was still actively working at the commission, was very much involved in moving the ball forward on that particular issue. So I'm very, very proud of that. I'm equally proud that we were able to put aside the Department of Energy proposed NOPR on resilience. There certainly wasn't any evidence uh, suggesting the commission could move forward. But when I first got there, it wasn't quite clear the commission wasn't going to act on that. 
there were certainly a lot of pressures to act. I think when Chairman McIntyre got there, we all worked together and came up with a reasonable compromise in, in rejecting that proposal. I'm very proud of that. And, you know, you asked about the dissents and the concurring opinions. I'm actually very proud of, very proud of many of those. I think that it's important sometimes for, for folks to know what the consequences, the public to know what the consequences of our orders are. And I think we certainly try to point that out. But also, I think it certainly has some debate or some some input in terms of the uh, the appeals that go forward on some of these orders. And so I'm, I'm very proud of what we've done there. Okay, let's maybe talk about some specific issues, Commissioner. Obviously, one, and we talked about this with uh, Chairman Chatterjee as well, pipeline approvals. They're controversial. They tend to get a lot of attention. Just talking generally about them, not anything specifically. You've, you've had a pretty consistent string of uh, dissents and statements associated with these pipeline approval cases. Uh, I want to ask your general views on them, but before we do all that, you've sent me scrambling to Wikipedia to look up Franz Kafka. And I'm just wondering if you've ever read Franz Kafka. And if you do, do you have a favorite Franz Kafka book? You know, I've actually done some research on Franz Kafka, but I have to admit I have not read any any Kafka. So maybe when I say something's Kafkaesque, <laughs> I should spend more time reading it first. I, I, okay, I spent, fair I spent, enough. I've, I've read that same Wikipedia article. As well, <laughs> well, good. So we're all in the same boat. That's good to know. <laughs> well, I got to say, if you want to read some of his works after reading the Wikipedia page, God bless you, because that seems like pretty dead stuff. So uh, anyway, all right. So now we got that out of the way. How about pipeline <laughs> approvals and your, your thoughts on that? I mean, obviously, we know where you stand big picture wise, but just, you know, some general commentary on how you think we can get past some of these issues uh, that seem so controversial, because obviously this infrastructure is important. I, you know, you've written about that, you appreciate that, but the politics associated with these projects is very, very tough. How do you, how do you balance that out? Yeah, this is an area that's gotten obviously increased attention, I think in large part because as more pipelines are, are being built and more LNG facilities are being built, they're being built closer to where people live. And obviously if people grow increasingly concerned when they think the pipeline's going to go through their land. And, and we've seen quite a, quite a bit of protest. But having said that, I've been frustrated in the sense where the commission is headed primarily on issues related to greenhouse gas emissions. So when FERC considers a proposed pipeline, it's supposed to consider whether the pipeline is in the public convenience and necessity, which is generally considered by the courts to be a public interest test. And so, you know, to make it simple, we're supposed to consider the benefits of the project and weigh them, weigh them against the adverse impacts. But in 2018, the commission announced a new policy in the new markets case in which the commission said, or the majority said, well, we're not going to consider the significance of the greenhouse gas emissions in, ter- in terms of climate change. And we're not going to consider whether those emissions associated with the pipeline, both direct emissions, but also emissions associated with the burning of the gas downstream from the pipeline. We're just not going to consider that, notwithstanding the fact that the courts have told us on a couple of occasions that you have to do that. It should be part of your consideration. And so, We've gotten into quite a bit of a tussle on this, in particular, Commissioner McNamee and I have had quite a bit of public debate on this, and we've written, I've written dissents, he's written concurring opinions. But I think what's going on here is we're creating a lot of legal risk for the pipelines. As I mentioned before, the D.C. Circuit has told us we're supposed to consider reasonably foreseeable downstream emissions, the greenhouse gas emissions, and the impact of those emissions on climate change when we're considering the public interest. And instead, the commission's put me in a position where I've had a vote against almost every pipeline, because in every single order, the commission says, no, we're not going to consider significance. And the point I try to make to my colleagues, and I made this at the most recent commission meeting, is that just because you consider greenhouse gas emissions and the impact of a project on climate change, that doesn't make you anti-infrastructure, anti-project. You could easily say, first of all, that even though you understand the, the, the significance of the emissions, if they are significant, you could say, well, the benefits of the project outweigh those emissions. Or if you think that the, the emissions are so significant, you can require mitigation. 
when we issue these pipeline orders, if you ever look at the back, there are conditions, sometimes, you know, 10, 15, 20 pages of conditions in which we require the pipeline operator or developer to mitigate impacts on wetlands, on soil, on vegetation, on housing, and all sorts of things that, that occur when a pipeline is built and operated. But my colleagues continue to say, well, we, we're, just, we're just not going to consider the climate change impacts, so we're not going to consider whether to mitigate those impacts. And so I think there's an easy way, easy path forward that I think it can easily be worked out as a compromise in terms of how we consider these efforts. But until my colleagues say we're not going to exclude climate change from these analyses anymore, I have no choice. I think I have to dissent on every one of them because I think that what the commission is doing is essentially flouting uh, what the uh, uh, the D.C. Circuit has told us to do on several occasions. Now, I, I want to make a point. There are a couple other issues that with pipelines um, are consideration of pipeline proposals. For instance, or is the project needed? Um, how are landowners treated? Is the public being brought in or is there enough public confidence in the process? Now, Chairman McIntyre, to his great credit, and I really mean great credit, his first commission meeting, he worked with Commissioner LaFleur and I in developing a, a notice of inquiry or, or announcing that we would, we would issue a notice of inquiry, which we eventually did, asking a whole bunch of questions about how we can improve our pipeline process. Uh, unfortunately, that notice of inquiry is still sitting here a couple years later. And with, I don't know if we're going to act on it at all. But I think we have a duty to improve the pipeline siting process in large part because I think we have a duty to the pipeline developers. If we're going to create all this legal risk by ignoring what the courts are telling us, eventually the courts are going to overturn these pipeline approvals and the pipeline developers got to go back to the commission again for another round of environmental review. It takes forever. We've already seen in a couple of cases uh, related to pipelines going through uh, Virginia and West Virginia and North Carolina, where the Fourth Circuit uh, has said other agencies haven't done their work correctly. They haven't dotted their I's and crossed their T's, and therefore it's causing these, these projects to cost billions of dollars more than they were originally planned to cost. And I think the same is going to happen with regard to our pipelines unless we figure out a more legally durable solution. Commissioner, a little bit earlier, you, you mentioned there was an easy solution to this, and that was a little too juicy to let go. Can you describe what that easy solution would be? Sure. The easy solution is to basically consider whether the emissions are significant or not. And if you think they're significant again, but you think the project benefits outweigh the significance, then vote for the project. If you think that the significance is too great, then actually mitigate the emissions. Uh, you can require the pipeline developer to, to buy RECs, renewable energy credits, or, or take some other action, plant trees, whatever it is, to reduce their emissions, reduce a project's emissions, or, or at least offset it. It's not that hard. Again, we do that for all sorts of environmental effects. Greenhouse gas emissions are the only environmental impact where the commission doesn't currently consider the significance when we review these pipeline applications. Would that measurement be a sort of a qualitative, you know, your opinion thing, or would there be some quantitative standard that you would use there? I think you could do it either way. Uh, and, we, and, we, and we do, all, for those, all those other environmental impacts, some of them are quantitative, uh, for instance, NOx emissions, for instance. Mm-hmm. Some of them are qualitative. Uh, what's the impact on, on uh, certain types of species? Or what's the impact on soil? What's the impact on, on uh, vegetation? And so the commission has a whole history of making a qualitative judgment on environmental impacts associated not only with pipelines, but also with hydro projects. And we could easily do it. You could, but if you wanted to, with greenhouse gas emissions, you could also use the social cost of carbon that's more of a quantitative impact assessment, but I think either either one would be legally durable. Which would be your preference? My preference would be to use the social cost of carbon, but I, my, my colleagues might not be as comfortable with that. 
Commissioner, you know, and, and I know you tweeted about this, so I know you have a strong feeling. Tolling orders and the impact that they have on landowners' rights and everything. We sort of touched on this a little bit with the chairman last month, but I wanted to get your opinion on that whole mix. So I think in, in general, I think people are probably aware that I think the concern is that under the Natural Gas Act, just like the Federal Power Act, we have a, an obligation or a statutory duty to act on rehearing requests within 30 days. And sometimes and often the commission issues tolling orders to delay that 30 day deadline. And the courts have ruled that to be legal and consistent with the Natural Gas Act or the Federal Power Act. The problem is if you are on the losing end of a commission order, you can't go to court and challenge that commission order until the commission issues a rehearing order. And so by holding on to those rehearing orders, sometimes they take, they should take 30 days. Sometimes they take a little longer. Sometimes they take two or three years. We've seen pipelines that have been built and the pipeline developer has been operating the project for a long time before it even gets to the point where we act on a rehearing order. And so essentially, if you're on the losing end, you don't really get your day in court, uh, especially when a pipeline uh, project is involved. And so we have a series of landowners that are frustrated. And, and what, what's happened is, is that uh, pipeline developers have, uh, have been able to start construction on a project before the um, rehearing order has been issued and, and construction on their land. But secondly, uh, under the Natural Gas Act, a project developer has the right to go to court and take land via eminent domain once they get uh, the initial approval from FERC, you know, a certificate of public convenience and necessity. And so the courts, and we talked about the word Kafkaesque earlier, uh, one of the, the judges at the D.C. Circuit said it's a very Kafkaesque approach that you can, that here you, you have a situation where you can't go to court and get your day in court until after the project's already built and, and after the, 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 the pipeline developer has taken your land. So to his credit, Chairman Chatterjee tried to respond, and the, ca the case is still pending at the D.C. Circuit. Uh, uh, they, they, they considered it en banc. They're considering it en banc currently. Chairman Chatter, to his credit, said, okay, we're going we're gonna to try to, we're going to partially fix that. We're going to say you can't start construction of a project before we issue the rehearing order. But what, they, what the commission didn't do, what the majority didn't do, and which is why I dissented in part, they didn't uh, say we were going to do the same thing for eminent domain. And so pipeline developers still, can still come in to court once they get the initial order and into district court and, and essentially initiate a proceeding to take your land without your, your ability to challenge that, that decision in court, the, the, the decision, the, the FERC's decision approving the pipeline. And again, we have plenty of examples where that's happened. And it's a basic case of fairness. And I, think I, I can't, for the life of me, can't figure out why the commission didn't go full bore and address that second prong that the uh, DC circuit has expressed concern about. Are you sympathetic at all with the company perspective that, hey, if, if we aren't able to have this strong process procedure to move forward with these projects, these projects could string out for years and nothing actually get built? Well, I, I am uh, sensitive to that. And I think there's, there are ways of addressing that. First of all, we could issue our rehearing orders within the 30 days required. I think if we actually had that situation where we actually live by that rule, and issued our rehearing orders within 30 days, the commission wouldn't have to take any other action. Secondly, and I do understand that these that the environmental reviews and, and the NEPA analysis and so on does take some time. We can certainly put more resources into this and, and try to expedite the, those processes. But if you if so, if you own a house or a farm or whatever, and someone tells you they're going to build building a pipeline under your under under your home, I think we also have to be concerned about those folks. They should at least have their day in court before someone puts a tractor on the land and starts, and starts uh, putting the pipeline under their house. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. That's terrifically insightful in terms of 
pipeline issues. And obviously we look forward to what the DC circuit may say on that because that obviously will dictate a lot. Uh, speaking of things that, that we're looking forward to, to hearing the outcome of, this week uh, FERC announced the uh, Carbon Pricing Technical Conference will occur on September 30th of this year. The commission received a petition from a broad range of interests expressing uh, a desire for FERC to use its convening authority to host a conversation about carbon pricing in the regional markets. FERC decided to take them up on the offer, announced this week that that technical conference is going to be held on September 30th of this year. Uh, Commissioner Glick, what are your thoughts? What can we look forward to do as part of that conference? I'm glad and appreciative that the chairman decided to uh, move forward and, and hold that technical conference. I know there's a lot of interest in that. I know the chairman mentioned this in his podcast last month, but um, it is interesting that there's such a broad array and a very diverse array of, of entities that, that requested that FERC uh, move forward with this technical conference. So the issues are interesting. I, obviously, New York is, is very far along in considering uh, some sort of carbon pricing in the New York ISO. There's been some discussions, I know, in the PJM region, some discussions in New, in New England ISO as well. And I think it'll be some fascinating discussion. Obviously, there are issues related to the commission's legal authority with regard to carbon pricing. I think there's issues related to how you would structure a carbon pricing approach and how they would work in the markets that the various RTOs around the country operate. And then also, I think that the the boogeyman in the room, I'm sure we'll talk more about, is state policies. If the commission were to approve some sort of carbon pricing mechanism, what would that mean for the commission's oversight of wholesale markets and the, the conflict that occurs sometimes with regard to state policies and how they impact wholesale markets. So I think all those issues plus more will probably be on tap. I would say that it's pretty clear in looking around, there's 23 states now that have adopted pretty significant greenhouse gas emissions targets. And I'm sure that's going to grow over time. And that's certainly where the energy industry is headed towards as well in terms of reducing emissions. And one thing, when I came to FERC, I was amazed. I never thought of much of that. I obviously thought a lot about carbon issues when I worked on Capitol Hill, but I never really thought of FERC really being involved in these issues. But when I first got there, I noticed that people were coming in mentioning climate change consistently, whether it be our pipeline analysis that I just talked about, um, eliminating market barriers to cleaner technologies, such as um, wind, solar, storage, transmission. Uh, A lot of people talk about the need for transmission to access cleaner technologies and how these state programs intersect with wholesale markets and PURPA and and our reform of PURPA as well. And so one of my advisors, legal advisors, Matt Christensen, and I sat down and, and, and put together a a law review article, I think it was more than a year ago now, they were pointing out how connected what we do at FERC, how, how connected that is with regard to the national debate and the regional debates that are going on about, about carbon, about greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. And so I think this technical conference is an outgrowth in part of what I think is already occurring and that, that I think we, we have to reconcile with what we're doing in terms of regulating these markets with um, uh, additional increasing number of proposals, both at the state level and now at the regional level, to do something more to reduce emissions. Let's fast forward, if we can, to like October of this year. The conference has already happened on September 30th. Sitting in October of this year, how would you look back and consider this September 30th conference's success or not? What would you consider a good outcome from this technical conference? I think a good outcome would just to be have, uh, to, to have a better record um, and um, uh, greater understanding of some of these issues. For instance, the legal issues. I bet you, without knowing too much, that not every one of my colleagues would agree with the other colleagues about what the commission's legal authority is with regard to this particular issue. And two, I think we, ha- we have to have the discussion about if there is some sort of carbon price what does that mean for MOPERS? What does that mean for efforts to address state subsidies that, that, are, that are also focused on 
uh, greenhouse gas emissions and how, 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 does, how does that get involved in the debate between accommodating state policies versus Mopring or Mopring state policies. And so for me, it's more of an educational opportunity, not only for myself, but hopefully for my colleagues. Now let's take the first one because I want to kind of stay away from the Mopr because it's pending on a couple of different levels. But you know, in regards to legal authority, I believe I've heard you opine that you thought FERC might have some challenges if it did it on its own, imposed carbon pricing on the regional markets. But if a RTO comes to FERC, there might be some more flexibility under the Federal Power Act for FERC to approve such a thing. Am I remembering your position correctly? Have you done any further thinking on it, if I am remembering it correctly? Well, I mean, that's close. I think what I said was it would be easier to pursue a carbon price through Section 205 of the Federal Power Act, where an entity, whether an RTO or some other entity came in, or, or an RTO for the most part, put it at a proposal to put some sort of carbon pricing in its tariff, because the standard's different, versus under Section 206, making a finding that the existing system is unjust and unreasonable before you impose a carbon price. Essentially, you have to say it's unjust and reasonable not to have a carbon price. So I think it's a lot easier from a legal perspective to pursue, sorry to get too weedy about this, Section 205 proceeding, rather than having the commission come up with a proposal on its own. Commissioner, do you have anyone who's been an observer giving you any information about the ongoing stakeholder process in PJM to develop a market construct to accommodate state carbon pricing and other carbon-related initiatives? Have you guys been following that at all? been following it. I don't wouldn't say that I have very detailed notes on what's going on at this point, but I've certainly been following it in the press and, and I've talked to a few folks about it. And I think, it is, you know, again, if we want to talk about specific cases, but I think in general, the commission has taken an approach that's, in, in my opinion, very hostile to date, very hostile to the state proposals with regard to clean energy, whether it be offshore wind or whether it be a nuclear power or whatever it is. Uh, and, and a lot of, you know, I think to the extent that the federal government is not addressing greenhouse gas emissions, it makes sense that that the states might want to do that. And I think in addition to that, the Federal Power Act is very clear that the states have authority over resource decision-making, not the FERC. So I'm growing increasingly concerned about the conflict that's taking place. I know that some state commissions feel like the relationship between the states and FERC are at an all-time low because of this. And I even spoke to one commissioner in the Northeast that said, well, why should we do anything that would increase FERC's authority over one of the activities we currently have jurisdiction over? They'll just make sure we can't pursue our public policies for green energy. And what New York is doing with regard to taking back, potentially taking back resource adequacy, the New York Public Service Commission. And then we see it in PJM, obviously, some of the states. And again, I don't want to get into the specifics of the case that's still pending at at the commission in some respects. But it troubles me that we could lead to a situation where we end up having a breakup of the, the market as a whole, or at least a breakup of the capacity market in a way that doesn't make a lot of sense by some states pursuing other options. So it's helpful for regions to think about other mechanisms that would essentially accommodate the states as opposed to trying to eliminate or act as a barrier to state programs. If you were king for a day, Commissioner, um, you had legislative authority, executive authority, administrative authority, and you had the ability just to develop the carbon policy that makes the most sense. You know, you got to accept the history of how we got here to this day, but assuming you could write and pass legislation and get it signed and or do what you need to do, you know, administratively at FERC, what, what in your mind is the gold standard path forward on all this? I'm a big believer that carbon pricing, that national carbon pricing makes a lot of sense. If it's a program that's created or structured properly, I think it uh, could certainly make a lot of sense. And I think it would certainly lead to dramatic reductions and hopefully get us along the path to where we need to get to. Obviously, I'm not king for a day. I, don't, I, I can't control what Congress does. And I know Congress has come close a couple of times that, that in terms of adopting various uh, greenhouse gas programs, but never gotten over the top on anything comprehensive. 
which is why I think it's important not to get in, get in the middle or, or try to stop the states at this point, because they feel like they're frustrated the federal government's not acting, so they feel like they have to act. Obviously, some of the politics around carbon have been changing. Um, you're seeing a lot more Republicans not afraid to, to speak about it, talk out about it. I mean, maybe putting on your former hat, you know, when you were over on Capitol Hill, do you see the climate changing over there at all in terms of appetite for doing something meaningful or carbon? Um, I mean, obviously there's a possibility there could be some you know, impacts from the upcoming election, but do you, do you, are you sensing a greater appetite from, from that side, if you will, to do something? I am. Um, and I noticed that you said the changing climate on Capitol Hill. I'm sure you didn't. That was no pun. Yeah, that was a bad play on words, wasn't it? I noticed it as I was saying it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think you have it exactly right. I think a lot of it is because look at if you look at polls of young voters, it doesn't matter if they're Republican or Democrat. They view climate change as a, as a very important issue that needs to be addressed, an urgent issue that needs to be addressed. And I think that's being reflected slowly but surely by their political representatives. When I was on Capitol Hill in the 1990s and then came back again in, I think, 2016 for, for a stint there, uh, I, I, I noticed that the, the, the trend was definitely towards more bipartisan belief that something needs to be done. I think the problem is, these days it's very hard to agree on anything on Capitol Hill. But there hasn't been much agreement on what it is that needs to be done. I think there is agreement, there's growing agreement, especially on the Republican side, that something needs to be done, but they're still a, a while away from getting to a concrete proposal that I think both sides can agree to. Well, moving on to some PJM specific issues, and actually maybe this question is more general issue than a PJM specific issue, but uh, you know, I'm curious, Commissioner, your thoughts on capacity markets in general. You've obviously taken issue with certain rulings from the commission as they relate to capacity markets, and you've also put out some comments specifically really as it relates to PJM expressing skepticism about PJM's capacity market. I think you've called for a wholesale reexamination of PJM's capacity markets. I'm just curious, you know, obviously without getting into the details of anything that's pending or anything specific, how do you view capacity markets? Do they have a role moving forward? And maybe specifically related to PJM, what should PJM stakeholders be thinking about as it relates to capacity markets? So, you know, first of all, resource adequacy obviously is very critical to reliability, and, and but there's multiple ways that you can accomplish or achieve resource adequacy. And the industry, you know, has, and, and the regions have put forth a variety of proposals, and they range from, you know, the mandatory uniform capacity markets that we see in the eastern RTOs to maybe the Texas ERCOT model being on the other end of that with no capacity market at all. But I have a great concern that the, the constructs that we're seeing, are, at least the, in the mandatory capacity markets, aren't necessarily designed anymore to produce just and reasonable rates. And, you know, I, I understand capacity markets are supposed to approximate competitive outcomes. They're not actually truly competitive markets, but I don't think this is occurring anymore. In large part, um, I think the administrative components of mandatory capacity markets have been captured in some instances by operator preferences that I think some people probably see as too conservative. And then other people, other stakeholders, I think, see capacity markets as, as a way to blunt or prevent or limit or delay the transition to a cleaner energy future, to a different energy resource mix. So I, I you know, use an example, the, the PJM VRR curve, which I can't talk about, that's no longer pending at the commission. I descended on it because 
the proposal was the PGM proposed something to establish net cones so high that, yeah, you're going to get much more capacity and too much capacity. It dulled the real-time prices in the, in the real-time market and undermines the ability of the market to reward resources for the value they provide. And that what I think is, has occurred now is where customers are left paying for a lot more capacity in some cases than they need. And I know it's supposed to settle out over time, but I don't think that the, the decisions that the commission has been issuing or the uh, proposals that we have been approving are going to ameliorate that over time. They're just making it worse, I think. And, you know, it, it, it's I, what I'd like to see is maybe a different approach. And, and, and I also want to say that I also understand the ERCOT approach by much different, uh, diametrically different than, than PJM and, and New England and New York. And that has its own issues. I, mean, I think it's worked actually pretty well so far. They've been able to figure out how to manage reliability and resource adequacy without having a capacity market. But in Texas, they probably have let's just say, a, a greater risk appetite than maybe other parts of the country. And so I don't necessarily see the ERCOT model necessarily uh, applying elsewhere. But I think what we need to do, and this is true for PJM, but elsewhere as well, is kind of take a step back a little bit and consider the new world, which we're transitioning to, and also the role of the states in that transition and say, what, what's going to be needed? And, and clearly, we're going to need a lot more flexibility. And what kind of market structures, both in, in, in terms of capacity markets, but also uh, you know, the energy markets, what's going to be needed to provide that flexibility? How do we ensure that we essentially value and provide some sort of incentive for the you know, t- services like frequency and voltage support and, you know, addressing other market solutions for, you know, ramp- ramping capability and other things like that. I-, I just think that we're spending too much time worrying about that mar- that generators aren't making enough money. And we, s- we seem to be reacting to that order after order. And we so we're, we're trying to raise prices, but we're not really looking at what the market needs. So I'd rather, if I had any say in it, there's a more holistic approach of take, taking a step back and saying, what's the future going to look like? And how should these markets be structured to achieve that future? It's interesting. At the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned when you first came to the commission that you developed a list of your priorities that you wanted to accomplish when you came to the office, you know, cybersecurity, new technologies, et cetera. When I came to the Pennsylvania Commission in 2001, I, I went through a similar exercise. And when, I think third on my list was fix the PJM capacity markets. <laughs> <laughs> so it just tells you how long we've been wrestling with these issues, you know, and PJM related to capacity. And it, it is challenging. I mean, because if you think about it big picture wise, you know, you're trying to replace, you know, a lot of the certainties of regulation with a market-based construct that can, you know, assure resource adequacy. And, you know, you need to be able to answer the question, you know, do we have enough resources to meet the needs? And that's ultimately what capacity markets are about. So it's, it's a tough question and it's, it's been a struggle for 20 plus years in PJM to keep working with it. So, you know, when I think about it from a PJM perspective, I mean, there's going to be a lot of resistance to a wholesale reexamination just because there's been so, so much pain involved and hand wringing to get to where we are. And a lot of folks have developed some degree of comfort with that. And that's both on the consumer and on the supplier side. But, you know, that said, and I think, you know, one of the things you're pointing out and appropriately so is you have to continue to question and examine whether any of these constructs are continuing to, to meet their desired purpose and serving, you know, what they were put in place to do. It'll be interesting to see how this conversation plays out 
you know, PJM, whenever they go through wholesale capacity market changes, whether it was, you know, RPM in 2005, six, seven ish, you know, whether it was capacity performance um, three, four years ago, maybe five years ago at this point, um, those were major, major lifts. And it seems like there, there might be a future conversation coming on this, but I guess what I would say is it, it would be a pretty significant move to move in that direction. And I think you would, you would agree with that commissioner, would you not? I mean, you're, you're talking about a pretty fundamental changing of the, I mean, it, it'd still be a capacity market design to assure resource adequacy, but I think what you're suggesting is resource adequacy. What it means to be resource adequate is evolving because of these new technologies. Is that fair? I think that's right. I, I would say I, I, I clearly don't have the background or the experience and the discussions that occurred a while back in PJM that you obviously do and, and other folks do as well. And I know this is a major undertaking, but I would say, I would try to compare it to what we're doing now. Since I've been at FERC now for two and a half years, it's just one proposal after another to make change after change after change. And those changes never seem to satisfy anybody. And I know it gets contentious at the stakeholder process back in Valley Forge. And, and and it's, it's been difficult for people that work at PJM. But I just think that uh, trying to whittle, doing, doing these one-offs that we're considering on various changes to the PJM market, I'm not sure they're achieving much either. So I, I, I would agree it's a monumental undertaking and, and, and maybe impossible to do in a short period of time. But I would ask people to compare that against what we're doing today. Well, Commissioner, the discussion about the actual issues that we're here to talk about has been wonderful. But as you know, from having listened to previous episodes, it's not all just business when we have these discussions. We also like to get into a couple of fun topics and we've got a couple of rapid fire ones for you here. Number one, how can you stand working with two Tom Brady fans? (laughs) Well, that, that was that was difficult. You know, I, I have to say, you know, your question basically suggests to me. I I I I was just thinking the other day that I really missed the sports banter that went on at the commission when I first got there. Commissioner Pallison and Chairman McIntyre, and Commissioner Lafleur, and, and and Commissioner and now Chairman Chatterjee. Um, we had a great. I mean, we used to talk about sports all the time, and, and during the commission meetings, I know at one point. Um, uh, Chairman Chatterjee again. Then Commissioner Chatterjee got up and started taking off his shirt a little bit. I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't sure what was going on, but underneath his, his dress shirt was a a, a, a number twelve Patriots um, Tom Brady uniform, and he wanted to show that off. I think before the Super Bowl. Actually, I'm I'm a big Minnesota Vikings fan, and that year um, they were they played the Eagles uh, in the in the NFC Championship game, and unfortunately they got crushed by the Eagles. But it was it was just nice to have that particular banter, and, and Commissioner Pallison certainly never let me forget that. Um, but that, who won that game? And even C- Commissioner Lafleur, you know, it was interesting. She's such a rabid Boston sports fan, not just the Patriots, but the other uh, the other the Red Sox and the Celtics and the Bruins as well. That we have a really nice send off for her. Her last commission meeting, we all got together, and I, I said, well, why don't we all wear Boston uniforms? And so one of us wore Larry Bird, and one of us wore Tom Brady, or or some other. I think it was another Patriot uniform because, quite frankly, it was cheaper. And I wore a Red Sox and Mookie Betts uniform. And we actually, um, we all walked into the commission at the same time. And I think it was a really nice send-off for Commissioner LaFleur. Unfortunately, we don't have as much banter about sports anymore as we once did, but I really miss it. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the one thing I regret not asking from the last month's podcast with Chairman Chatterjee was if he will now become a Tampa Bay fan since Tom Brady has moved on. Uh, I really wanted an answer to that. And and as a as a long suffering Washington Redskins fan, I have to say you're welcome for Kirk Cousins. So uh, enjoy that. Um, I'm kind of curious how you became a Minnesota Viking fan. What's the connection there, Commissioner? I grew up in the New York region, and the rest of my teams, the Mets. The, the 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 Rangers and the Knicks. I'm big fans of those teams. But Fran Tarkenton was when I was very young. Fran Tarkenton was a quarterback for the Giants and got traded back to the Vikings. He was originally on the Vikings, went to the Giants, came back to the Vikings. And so I just my allegiance went with him, and just became a rabid Vikings fan. Unfortunately, they haven't haven't been able to even win a Super Bowl. <laughs> no, they've been there a couple times, you know, and always seem to be sniffing around it. But uh, maybe one of these days. That's interesting. I remember watching Fran Tarkenton. I remember the Steelers beating Fran Tarkenton in a Super Bowl, too. So that yes. was fun. That was, a Steelers that was a very ugly game, yes. <laughs> that was an ugly game, that's for sure. Well, I'll let you guys talk about that. I don't even know what years those were. So uh, uh, 70, what was that, Commissioner? 74, maybe? <laughs> it was, yeah, 74, 75, somewhere. It was after the Dolphins, I think. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Cool. Commissioner, what criticisms bother you most? I think the biggest criticism that bothers me, and we've talked about negotiating, is that I don't accept half a loaf and that I'm just, I, I, it's an all or nothing proposition for me. And I, I, I very much bristle at that. I really did come to the commission with an idea that we should compromise and discuss and negotiate. And I, I'm disappointed we haven't done more of that, but that that's in particular bothers me. One question we asked Chairman Chatterjee last month was if he had the opportunity to pick the headline for a newspaper article about his administration, what would that read? What would your headline be for your time on the commission, say, in, in, in a retrospective years from now? Well, I'd like to say that um, I'd like for folks to say that I acted with principle. Uh, that I approached the job with, with great principle, but also that um, we made a positive difference as we transitioned to a cleaner energy future. And I don't know how obvious it's been, but we always sign off at the end of these with BX into each other. That's how we end each podcast. And for anyone who is a Bill and Ted fan, you'll know where that comes from. I recently learned that Bill and Ted 3 is coming out in August, 29 years after the last one. Commissioner, are you a fan? If so, what thoughts do you have? And do you think this will suffer from not having the legendary George Carlin in it? Well, I've seen the first two, but it's been, it's been more than 20 years. I, I, I do remember. <laughs> yeah. I think on the, the George, I think clearly they're going to suffer from the loss of George Carlin. We all suffer. Right? We've all suffered. He's such an amazing comedian, such a talented comedian. My last memory of George Carlin was my son when he was younger. He's now 11. When he was younger, he used to watch um, Thomas the Train. Uh, cartoons or Thomas Trainer all the time on PBS, and mm-hmm. I think George Carlin was the um, narrator after Ringo Starr left. Yeah, I was I was going to say after That's Ringo right. Starr. Yep, yeah, yep, absolutely. Shining Time Station. Exactly right. I don't, I don't know why I know that, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> all right. Five years to get that song out of my head. <laughs> if, if if you sang a couple of bars, I'd be right there with you. <laughs> all right. So uh, one of the staples of our podcast here is that we reserve the last few minutes for the opportunity to provide some advice. Commissioner, if you had two minutes to provide one-on-one advice with anyone, anywhere, who's your pick, who are you going with, and what would you tell them? Sure. Actually, I'd like to two bits of advice. One of them is wear your masks when you're outside your home. It's, you know, it's pretty clear that while we're making some progress on coronavirus, I think, is, and we don't know everything yet, the more evidence that we see is that masks save lives and masks dramatically reduce transmittal of the virus. 
And given the situation that we're in, we desperately need to do that. And it, sometimes it concerns me that we, our country has kind of broken down between people that wear masks and people that don't wear masks, and they don't quite understand it. It's not an issue of personal preference. It's not, well, I'm, you know, we're, we're, we're free in America. We don't need to do that. It's not about pr protecting yourself for your own choice. It's protecting others. And, you know, you talked about be excellent to each other. I think that's one example. We need to, we need to do that for everybody. Second thing, want to address is the other major issue that's occurring these days out there, which is obviously the issue of social justice and what's going on with regard to the treatment of African-Americans and so on. And I spoke about this at the most recent commission meeting in the sense that, you know, we all recite the Pledge of Allegiance and the Pledge of Allegiance ends with, with liberty and justice for all. And we don't necessarily think a lot about that. And the fact is, justice for all is not necessarily there for everybody, and especially folks in the in various minority communities, African-American community and other minority communities don't feel that they are seeing that kind of justice. And I think we have a lot to do. Now, we, you know, we can't all fix things in a societal way, I should say, that quickly, but we can do what we can do internally, whether it's organizations at FERC, or our own offices, or our own lives, try to treat people better, try to treat people with more justice, and try to do what we can. And so I want to leave a message that just do your best and try to try to see what you can do locally to achieve better justice. Glenn, your turn. Yeah, for my bit of advice this month, I'm going to instead pick, instead of picking out a single person like I usually do to give advice to, I'm going to take the more general approach that some of our guests have taken as well. First of all, just uh, I think Commissioner Glick hit on the two really key issues that we're struggling with right now. Uh, obviously, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. Uh, these are challenging times uh, under any circumstances, but combine that with a national conversation about justice and race makes these particularly troubling times, particularly as we head into a presidential election. During these times, I would just urge folks, obviously, stay safe, stay healthy, stay sane. As it relates to social justice issues, these are tough conversations, but they're necessary conversations. And I guess my piece of advice to folks is don't be afraid of the conversations and try not to be judgmental in those conversations. I think in order for this dialogue to be successful, it needs to be open, it needs to be honest. And if people are afraid to speak their minds, uh, no matter what side of the debate or what your views are on any of these issues, it's really gonna hamper the ability for progress. So embrace the conversations um, in your communities, embrace them in your families, uh, embrace them as a society so we can all hopefully aspire to a better future, both on the health front and on the justice front. Yeah, I also appreciate those. And, and my two minutes was going to be on the social justice issues as well. So I appreciate you mentioning that. The only thing that I will add is that I have just learned in my experience that if you're not a minority, you don't have to agree with their opinion, but you do have to listen to them. You have to hear what is being communicated to you because too often we aren't able to actually understand the message that they're sending across. So be open to listening. And for the final segment of each episode, we always try to leave some time to spare in your hour. But given the robust conversation we've had, you're only going to get out of here with a few minutes left over. So Chairman Chatterjee, for listening, we apologize for the extra long workout this time, but hopefully you were able to persevere. Glenn, Commissioner, thank you both for being here. Any parting thoughts? Just thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, this was terrific, Commissioner. Thanks for joining us. Thank you again for joining us, and we hope to have you again very soon. I'll just put a plug in there for that. And as I said earlier, as always, be excellent to each other. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. 
views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts, and not necessarily any GT PowerBook client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.